Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. We are super delighted to have our friend Richard Turin back with us on the show to talk about his new book, Cashless. Rich, welcome back and congrats on the new book and making the best seller on Amazon. For our listeners who have yet to have a chance to read it, can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Sure. Hi, Brad. Hi, Teo. Thanks for having me here. Um, the book is all about China's transition to a cashless economy. And this includes what I call version 1.0 payment solutions, which are, of course, WeChat and Alipay. And it includes what I, the, what I call the second version or the second iteration, which is coming up now, which is the central bank digital currency. So cashless covers the story of how WeChat and Alipay changed China to make them truly cashless and how central bank digital currency is coming up next. And it's going to further that process. You can't really understand what central bank digital currency or CBDC is all about unless you understand sort of what came first. So um, it is the first book on China's CBDC and the only one in existence right now. <laughs> so, um, And I wrote it because I've lived in China for the last 11 years. Let's get into that then about what uh, a CBDC is. So, so just yesterday, I think venture investor Naval Ravikant, the billionaire investor, said on Twitter, he said, a central bank digital currency, a CBDC, is the opposite of a cryptocurrency. It's the complete centralization of money with no intermediary bank or monetary instruments under the all-seeing state. Uh, it kind of seems like an accurate take. So, so how do you... How do you think about uh, what The Economist this week on their cover calls GovCoins, and how does this all work? Sure. Um, okay, so there's a, let's break this down. There's a couple of issues here. And um, the first issue to cover is centralized versus decentralized. In fact, governments right now could care less. All they care about is controlling decentralized networks through taxes, through uh, KYC, which you see in all of the um, exchanges in the United States and in most of Western Europe. So, you know, the real issue is not whether it's centralized or decentralized, because both of these currencies have the same fate in the sense that both are subjected to know your customer, anti-money laundering, and um, and taxation, you know, so, you know, the concept that decentralized is good and free, free money, your money is free. Sorry, that just doesn't track anymore in the world of controlled digital currency. So the gap between this concept of a decentralized and free currency and a controlled and centralized government issued CBDC is far narrower than many make it out to be. Um, so that's sort of number, that's sort of a first thing that we should break out. So centralized, look, I understand 
that people who are true loyal fans of Bitcoin and decentralized currencies, I get that they're never going to really wrap their arms around and love <laughs> CBDC. I get that. And my, my thesis in the book is that those who really love raw crypto, it is such a different world than central bank digital currency that they're sort of different planets and they're both going to coexist happily with one another. So I don't see I don't see CBDC destroying crypto. I don't see crypto destroying CBDC. They're both going to peaceably coexist. As far as GovCoin, it's a neat term. And I know, yeah, The Economist um, surprised me by putting that out. I'm not sure GovCoin is any catchier than CBDC, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, the one thing is that GovCoin could potentially be stable coins or other coins that are not central bank dig digital currency. So it's a little less specific. So I'm not wildly in love with it. If you tell me it sounds good, I'll, I'll go with it. I don't care. But, you know, it's just it just it doesn't really it is less in my view, it is less specific than a coin that is specifically issued by the central bank. Um, I saw The Economist use it, and I've seen it in a couple of other places, but I don't see people in the biz using it yet. Yeah, when I when I see the, the, the acronym CBDC, I think, you know, like CBD and Elon Musk and I don't know, pot and I don't know what else is with cannabis stuff. So to me, of coins actually makes kind of sense. Um, so 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 let's talk about that a little bit decentralized centralized a bit and and this idea of control because you know whenever you mention any type of cryptocurrency on Twitter for example you immediately get attacked by you know the the crypto bros and I don't really understand it I'll be honest I mean a, as a method of payment as you know this this store of value or speculation I get the difference between you know what they're calling gov coins and sort of decentralized currency but it's not about you know, this, this idea of getting away from the government, um, there's a lot more than that. So with, with what's going on right now in the past year, you know, how should we think about then the recent massive fluctuations in cryptocurrencies from, you know, the, the big boys like Ethereum and Bitcoin uh, versus, you know, Dogecoin and all these other sort of secondary coins that in some cases are kind of jokes. Uh, how, does, how does this, you know, not somehow taint what governments are trying to do with centralized digital currency and, and how should consumers think about this? What are your thoughts? Sure. Um, let's first look at, you know, how does this not taint? Look, for anybody who thinks about using digital currency to simply buy a cup of coffee or to buy their groceries or to just simplify their bill payment, because it would be a nice thing to do to evolve cash to this next level, which for a lot of reasons sounds at least convenient and nice. And I can tell you, I live in China where I have it and it is convenient and nice. To all these people, I say, boy, you know, a 50% drop in Bitcoin makes it tough to want to love Bitcoin to buy your coffee and to buy your groceries with. So um, I don't think there could have been a stronger a signal to people that um, central bank digital currencies that are 
far more stable and allow you to buy stuff um, are potentially useful. I won't get into whether they're good. I understand that people may not like them for other reasons, but at least they allow you to convey value without the volatility of um, of of crypto. And, you know, the, the thing we have to look at with crypto is that, and this is actually a really interesting article in, in one of the big uh, coin uh, uh, websites. It was just basically saying, hey, this volatility is a feature, not a bug. And that's fine. But again, if you're buying coffee or groceries, it's not a very nice feature. So what it does for the rest of the market. So look, we can look at, and forgive me, I know I'm saying it wrong, but I love it, Doggy coin or Dogecoin. Look, we can look at these and, you know, we can sort of see how they are the tip of a new iceberg. They, they look, first of all, obviously they don't have a central bank behind them and their value is based on user sentiment. So they're going to be very volatile and swing up and down. And, you know, whether you like these secondary coins and whether you think they're real or whether people are a Ponzi scheme, you know, I leave that to other people. I'm happy if you want to buy them and that makes you happy. That's great. Again, I live in this world where I believe we're going toward a future where we're going to have digital wallets. And these digital wallets are going to have whatever digital currency you want to put in there. And if you want to spend Bitcoin to buy your coffee or Dogecoin or, or central bank digital currency, or if you want to whip out a $10 bill, be my guest. If that's what make, Whatever makes you happy, you'll be able to pay many ways. I like that. And I like the way how you describe it. I, I think that part is often lost when we talk about digital currency. And speaking of, I am curious to, from, from your perspective, what are some of the primary differences as you see from your vantage point between how the different regions are, are thinking about the future of digital currency, right? You're looking at what the United States is thinking about versus what um, Europeans are thinking about versus, for example, China, where you're in right now. Sure, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna answer your question, but with a surprise answer. I think if we look at the four most developed CBDCs, there's something really interesting happening, and actually, I should say five, um, and they are. The Bahamas, who wins the prize for the first CBDC in the world. Congratulations to the Bahamas. And the second one that's in trial is the Eastern Caribbean islands. It's the Dutch Antilles and Nevis. Uh, there are six islands. I'm sorry. I, I apologize to anybody from there. I can't remember the names of the six or eight islands. Um, they're in trial for a CBDC. But what makes these two unique is they're both island nations. and the other two that we'll get to would be would be um, uh, China, obviously, and Sweden, which is the most advanced of the pilots. And there's sort of a fifth. It's not a full-on CBDC. Um, it's a it's from Cambodia, Project Bekong. Um, but I want to talk about how the CBDCs for island nations, which may not seem 
like such a big deal, but they really are. And the reason is, I think that when you look at these island nations, central bank digital currency is fulfilling its greatest possible mission, which is bringing financial inclusion to islands who physically cannot support a brick and mortar bank. So people are on small islands. Bahamas has many, many hundreds of islands. You can't put a bank there. It's just never going to happen. So digital is giving these people financial inclusion that they never had before. CBDC is fulfilling its ultimate role. And I say that these are CBDCs that are small in stature, but huge in heart. They are phenomenal. So um, that's the one regional gap. And I think you're going to see more CBDCs launched by small islands and small countries, because if you look at their balance of what's the risk, what's to gain, right? They have everything to gain from using this tech and almost nothing to lose. I get that the United States is big. I get that they have everything to lose with a CBDC. So they're going to be slow and ultra conservative. Great. No problem with that. But these other countries, they're running to it because why wouldn't you? No, there's no loss. So clearly, look, if you look at Sweden and China, now those are the big ones. And that's really, I'm sure what you were expecting me to talk about first. Very simple. You cannot generalize about CBDCs. Every CBDC is custom built. There's no standard. There's no go in, to this instruction manual and that will build your, help you build your CBDC. No way. You got to build them individually. So China and Sweden have different systems and you're expecting, and many people are expecting me to say, oh, well, Sweden's is much more private. Well, yes, it is, but it's more gray and less black and white than you might think. So um, China has an anonymous payment function that you can click on to make your payment anonymous, which is wonderful. Sweden uses a system of separating the, um, they actually have an account-based system. So they actually have accounts, but the accounts don't have names on them. They're held someplace else, which by the way, is also what China uses. China has one set of servers, if you will, that has all the, not an, it doesn't have accounts actually in China, but still they have one set of servers with data and none of that data has a name on it. All the names are held in some ultra secure other server system. But, you know, the thing is, when you read the Swedish um, white papers on CBDC, they tell you real clearly, well, we're going to keep it all private. Unless maybe there's some really big problem, like somebody gets killed or maybe there's some scam or maybe some devious behavior. They're less. Um, so, you know, the concept that you're, that you're expecting me to say maybe or listeners might expect me to say, which is China's security bad, Sweden's security good. Yes, I will admit that from on face, privacy is a. Um, is probably at a higher level in Sweden's, but it's not the big gap that you think it is. And yes, I will say this, and the Bitcoin folks are going to go, oh my God, this is what we told you. Sweden is clear. Defraud, major issues. Well, we might want to poke around and put the names and the accounts together.
So that's, that's the reality. Well, and that's, that's a lot of what we at Santander, when I was there, were investing in, were companies, you know, that were sort of understanding who was doing what transactions, because with AML and KYC, you kind of had to do that as a bank. Um, so, so when we think about, you know, the, these, these island nations that are, you know, their, their currencies are small in nature, but big in heart, I like this idea that, that CBDC can drive inclusion. But when it comes to, to China and their sort of ambitions, uh, it's, it's one sort of train of thought to say that the move into CBDCs is about ensuring that you have the predominant currency for the future. You know, that the dollar after all these decades is somehow being challenged digitally. So when we, when we look at, at China, you know, let's, let's get into what your experience has been living there for the last, I think you said 11 years and what has changed in your thinking <clears throat> about how we get China wrong, you know, how the West gets China wrong. Is this about control for the future? What's it about? Sure. Well, okay. So let's, let's, let's answer the question that everybody is waiting for. Look, whenever you talk about China's central, uh, central bank digital currency, the first question is, is the central bank go digital currency from China, is the e-yuan going to replace the dollar? Is it going to take a run at the dollar? Is it going to dethrone the dollar? You, you can word it a million different ways. And the answer to that is clear. The People's Bank of China has never in any report press release or otherwise said, hey, we're making this currency to dethrone or to, to replace the dollar. In fact, recently, again, the um, former head of the PBO, uh, P, uh, PBOC, and this is the man that I credit with calling, I call him the father of modern fintech. His name is Zhou Xiaochuan, and a bad pronunciation, I know. Um, but he was very clear saying, look, there's too much talk about replacing the dollar. That's never been the intent of this thing. And so that's a fine question, but let's change it. So first thing is when you say replace the dollar, you have to understand the dollar is in investments, it's in stocks, it's in bonds, it's in oil trading, it's everywhere. So the concept that the central bank digital currency would replace it is on face, somewhat absurd. But wait, hold on. Now I'm going to ask a different question. And this, the People's Bank of China has been clear. They want to reduce their dollar dependence. So let's ask a different question. Can China's digital yuan reduce their dependence on the dollar? And now I'm going to put one more thing in. Can it substantially reduce the amount of dollar used in trade? Now think about that. Now you've got dollar use for stocks, bonds, oil, all kinds of stuff, right? But China can't control any of that. They're the world's largest exporter. If they can make a central bank digital currency that is compelling for people to use, and they start to revalue trade with China into digital currency, 
oh, they've got a winner and the numbers are big. And yeah, they'll be at euro size um, currency uh, uh, dissemination in no time. So, yeah, it's not a threat on the dollar per se, but it is a tool to decrease dollar dependence and a tool for them to re to to replace the dollar in in trade use. And that's so that's that part of the question. And China and living here for 11 years has been a mind blowing experience. Um, look. I see China through different eyes living here. I see it as a nice place. I see it as a place that is in many ways more capitalistic than my former home in New York. Uh, I see it as a place of, and I'm, this is touchy, I know people are going to get upset about this, but I see it as a place where I have great freedom, where I do what I damn well want, and it treats me per particularly well. So I understand that there are big issues between the U.S. and China. I get that. I wish the rhetoric would calm down a bit. I hope that we are able to collaborate in a meaningful way because we're the two big U.S. and China, like my mother and father, they're the two biggest powers on the planet, and I want them to get along and collaborate so we can all do more. So, uh, but yes, living here for 11 years um, changes your perspective and it's a nice place to live. I, I don't know what to say. That's really sounds so so trite and basic, but it really is. It's a nice place to live. Yeah, I, I think uh, the people that criticize China and China policy just haven't been there. You know, the the times that uh, I've traveled through Beijing and. I think uh, Hangzhou and, you know, going through Shanghai and these places, you know, you, you, you think that you're, you're in the future and, and you really question what the U.S. has done wrong, especially with infrastructure and building and just structure in general. No, that's, that's the very premise. Look, that is what made, compelled me, forced me, dragged 380 some odd pages, 60,000 words out of me. I mean... Look, when I travel back to the U.S., when I track back, travel back to my other small hometown in Italy, I feel like I'm going back to the Dark Ages. And I understand that people are very concerned and, about privacy and other things, but these digital currencies are sold or talked about in the U.S. as though they're a toy or a nicety. We've got credit cards. That's enough. You really have to see what they did in China. They raised people out of poverty. They made entire new branches of services for people that can be digitally paid that you don't even have in the United States. And it's not because China is poor and has a lot of people, which is true. So we treat digital payment, which is the pinnacle of China's fintech development prior to CBDC being launched. But we treat it as it's a nice city. It does, we, we see it as like window dressing, something nice, tinsel, flashy. It goes to the root, free payment from one human being to another without paying a third party 2 or 3% as a credit card. Financial inclusion for all people. These go to the root of what makes your country strong, powerful, and GDP growth. So I find it sort of amusing because... 
China is the model for, hey, we made payment free for everybody and everybody got it. And look, boom, we got a big boost out of this. Let's keep it up. Let's do a central bank digital currency. But meanwhile, the West sees it simply as a nicety, tinsel. Oh, well, it's really not that big a deal. We don't need that. Yeah, and, and, and I think, if anything, we've seen it being um, a, a burden, especially to the low to mid-income who are unbanked in the United States. There was an article recently that talked about um, the the uh, the childcare payment that's going to be coming in the summer from the new administration to help the um, a lot of the families who are in need. One in four of them will not be able to get that directly deposited in their bank accounts. And they have to find other means to get that cash. And normally those challenges are burdened by people who actually need the money the most, that they'll end up having to pay a third party to cash the checks and pay even more money to, 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 to get their hands on it. So if anything, I, I think we, we're seeing, um, you know, how digital payments or the lack of it in the United States and, and a lot of the more developed countries, you know, hurting people, um, which goes to the whole financial inclusion that you're talking about, Richard. And which brings us to something, um, a related topic that we talk much about, which is super apps. It, it's, it's everywhere. People keep talking about it, but much has changed though. I, I, I would challenge from when we first talked about super apps, when they come about, in the Chinese ecosystem um, with the likes of Alipay and Tencent and how that model has slightly shifted and to now what we see in Southeast Asia, Gojek and Grab and um, what Effie say, the wannabes um, in the West, which we also say those are not really the same super app model as the ones that we have seen taken place in, in Asia. So um, if you were to have a crystal ball, Rich, what are your predictions going to be with respect to where we would evolve um, from regulation to, you know, geo um, characteristics, for lack of better words? Yeah, I think we're getting there. I, you know, look, so super apps, um, super apps are wonderful. Um, I use them in China every day. They are, they provide you with 360 degree life coverage. So one app and you basically do everything. You do government services on an app. You do your shopping on an app. Whatever it is that you need in life, you do on your app. And that's both WeChat and Alipay in, in, in equal measure for in here in China. So most people in the West, and I'm going to say this with, uh, for a reason, and we'll get to it in a second. Most people in the West cannot conceive of what a super app is because even the most super of our apps, something like an Amazon, because Amazon gives you TV watching, it gives you buying stuff, even has some kind of credit card and other financial stuff attached to it. Even the biggest of our app ecosystems is tiny by comparison. So, um, if you're thinking Amazon, it doesn't cut it. You have to expand Amazon a thousandfold to think about that it's not just that you go 
buy a, or watch a movie on Amazon and then, you know, you buy something. But your shop down the street, you can buy from them and they can deliver. And, you know, in, in China, it takes literally a half an hour. But my point is, it is this more expensive use. Um, so are we going to get there? Yeah, theoretically, PayPal um, is trying the, the CEO of PayPal just came out with a strong statement saying he wanted to go the super app route. And I think that um, that's fine. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Ron Shevlin, wrote an article on Fortune. And he said, basically, um, he said, there's no reason for PayPal to go super app. And his motivating factor was that consumers in the U.S. and Europe aren't clamoring for a super app. To which... I have to take a contrary position. Ron and I love each other. He's a great guy. But to my knowledge, consumers in the U.S. and Europe don't even know what a super app could possibly do. And it's sort of like, do you need an electric light bulb if you've got candles and oil lamps? You don't know that an electric light bulb would change your world. And that's sort of what a super app is. So I think we'll get them. I think somebody in the app universe is going to become more super the thread that makes there are two critical components that make a super app one is payment that's the glue that holds together both chat and alipay and the second thing is these mini programs super apps in china use a program so you basically run a program within the app and that allowed super apps in China to explode because now it's not about you, your company, your services. It's about anybody's services being on the app. And when we get to that, when PayPal allows somebody to say, hey, you can build some app, run it on the PayPal platform, use PayPal to pay, that'll be the defining moment when I know they're going to go um, rocket ship to Mars big. <laughs>well you know that's that's probably never going to happen i think about you know a couple of years ago facebook was trying to build sort of mini mini programs uh, from within their app on ios and apple had none of it and it's you know they 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 talk in in the press financial times and a lot of uh, us press like to talk about china and control and all this stuff and you know what controls the us economy and a lot of the western economies it's businesses and that's a that's a problem because because businesses only think about themselves and their profit and everything else we don't have the infrastructure that we should we don't have super apps that actually are open and allow things like payment to actually change people's lives or credit to change people's lives and this is the challenge between the western mindset and what you see in china and other economies is that there is really a difference between i'm going to take care of me i'm going to take care of my business and I'm going to take care of my community and my society. And that, I think, is something that Western minds just can't wrap their heads around when they think about the difference. Because in the last 10 years, we've seen 600 million more people being brought into the financial system. And it's more than access. It's a capability to get credit and to make payments and to build businesses. And more than two-thirds of that has come from China. So when yes. the U.S. thinks about, you know, Chinese innovation and they look at this and they look at their technology as a threat because of this idea of control, we should step back in the West and look at how much business controls us and controls 
policy and controls political decisions. So are there other ways when you looked at this book and in your 11 years of living in China that the West should really learn and maybe partner with what's happening in China and other places in the East? What are your, what are your sort of final thoughts on this, Richard? Sure. Um, my final thought or near, near next to near final thought would probably be that people should be afraid. If you think that the GAFA companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, are the pinnacle of innovation, of di pinnacle of digital innovation in the planet, you are sorely mistaken. And even worse, they are driving a system that dissuades and prohibits innovation. So if you look at GAFA companies, you know, five, six years ago. How many new ones are there? Okay, you could argue that Netflix is perhaps a new one. But it's not quite the, you know, not quite that big yet. But it's a, it's perhaps a new, a big, a big new tech company. But when you go to China, you know, you've got the likes of uh, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, you know, and then... Three, four years ago, five, let's make it five years ago, just to be clear. You've got ByteDance coming along. You've got JD.com. You've got digital companies that are such, have such fast growth and so innovative that they get to challenge, they get to challenge the actual, so they grow so fast and they have such innovation that they actually challenge the um, the big tech companies. You don't see that in the in the West. Nobody's challenging Google, Apple, and Facebook. Nothing. They are controlling a marketplace and do not allow innovation. So when you see Facebook buying WhatsApp, boom, gone. Innovation on WhatsApp. WhatsApp was primed to be the next WeChat pay, the payment system. Because it was bought by Facebook, that it could never evolve in that direction. So the bad news is, folks, I'm sorry, you're not as innovative in Silicon Valley as you think you are. If you look at Google, Apple, Facebook, they do pretty much today what they did 10 years ago. If you go to the 10 years back and look at the China big tech companies, what they are today is miles different, you know, but, but, but when compared to what they were 10 or seven years ago, less. So the innovation that we have in China, yes, we should share it. We should copy it. If they've got great ideas, fine, copy it. It's fine. The West has accused China of copying. It's time to copy the other way. But really, what this is about is about collaboration, and we need to collaborate more. And if China's got great tech and we can use it in some meaningful way, we should be able to strike a deal, and that's good business. But right now, the, the climate is toward ban and block and villainize. And, you know, if China's got tech, it's going to be bad tech. If China's got tech, it's going to be dangerous and we should block it. And if China's got tech, particularly when I talk about 5G, that we don't have at all, we have no native manufacturers of 5G, well, then it should be banned globally. So, you know, I know there's issues with Huawei. We all know there's different stories here, but ban, block, 
um, isn't going to cut it uh, going forward. I think that's the one thing that we fail to recognize. We are not how the world was when you have physical borders, right? This is digital. And with digital, that's how information flows. That's how ideas flow. And it's not a zero sum game that the world has changed. And, you know, one cynical way of looking at it is the reaction probably validates that there is something there and there that is interesting that's happening out in Asia, which is why people are reacting the way they do, because that's how people normally react to perceived threats. But I do hope that, you know, we will evolve to a state where we can collaborate more, um, especially with the emerging technology when we're talking about data sharing and AI and all of that. I think there are different um, things we should and must share between countries and regions um, because that's how we can do better together. Um, before we wrap, Richard, can we talk a little bit about where our listeners can get the book? Sure. Of course, I'm always delighted to talk about Cashless. So the book's title is none other than Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution. And it's available on Amazon uh, all across the planet in uh, digital and in paperback and hard co uh, copy. So it's on Amazon and it's in your local Amazon store. And uh, I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in cashless. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And um, it is designed to be a book that's, if you will, a page turner and something that is interesting because I really wrote it from a personal perspective where it's got my stories, my life, things that happened to me. And um, it tries to get this message out to as many people as possible. It's not written for the fintech and fintech only crowd because that would make for a slow reading book. Um, we're all living into this digital future of, uh, of digital payment and cashless future. And the more people that I can reach to tell them how potentially good it can be, um, the better. And that's really what compels me to write. So it's on Amazon and I hope People like it. I, I'd love to hear from you all. Thank you. That's awesome. And for our listeners, this is actually Rich's second book. His first one is Innovation Lab Excellence, which is also a great read. And one thing I do love about your book, um, Rich, is that there's a QR code in front. It is so you. And you can scan. And it brings you to your website with um, reviews from our fellow we should, friends. We should have done that. What was, what was right? what we were thinking? Uh, apparently, we, we should have learned from the pro. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today, Rich. Always a pleasure. And I feel like I just went through a half an hour lesson. And we need to do more of that because that's how we can all get better together. So thanks again for joining us on the show. And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.